Invisible Threads, a Go Loud original. I'm James O'Hagan, and from LGBT Ireland, this is Invisible Threads, a Go Loud original podcast. You can find out more information about LGBT Ireland and the work which we do for older members of the LGBTQ community on our website, lgbt.ie. In this episode, I'm speaking with Anne, a 66-year-old retired academic living in North Dublin. Anne was the only of the participants who I hadn't known of or met prior to starting work on this series. A mutual friend suggested her and told me that she was a theologian and a poet who had been extremely close friends with Anne Louise Gilligan and Catherine Sapone, two of the leading campaigners in the 2015 marriage referendum, and that she would have a very interesting story to tell. When I finally got a chance to speak with Anne, what came through loud and clear, despite all of that, was how first and foremost in her mind was her family. We chatted about how she had found 2020, and she said that she was so aware of how lucky she had been living in a nice location with a partner she loves, joking that she's especially lucky to have been the great indoors type and was quite content reading or doing crosswords, and that her partner had roped her into doing more than her fair share of jigsaws. But mostly we talked about how terribly sad she was to be missing those family celebrations. She'd recently attended a Zoom celebration for a family member's wedding, which had been impacted by the pandemic. It had turned out to be very nice, with champagne and photos, but she said that she was missing the spontaneity. She spoke with such pride and love about her two children, both living abroad, and how she longed to see and hug them again, and with excitement about getting to see her grandchildren when the restrictions lifted and travel was possible. Anne started by telling me about how settled she had been in her life with her husband prior to coming out. I was extremely happily married. And it's real important that I say that and that that comes across because I was a young woman. I met my husband. I was 17. We were in the same class in college in matter of day. We were idealistic. We were totally and madly in love. And um, I'd say he was the most unpatriarchal man that I ever knew. You know what I mean? He, he, he didn't typify anything of the macho at all. He was so gentle and a very domestic being. Like I can remember um, when I was a young woman coming to this huge realisation that we were both working, you know, and t- I both teaching, he was teaching as well. And I was breaking my heart, like trying to do all the housework as well as, you know, mind the kids, <laughs> juggle everything. And I remember I said to him one day, why is it my job to do the housework? And he kind of looked. And he said, that's a really good question. Why is it your job? And then like from that moment on, I think he did more than I ever did in my, in my entire life. He was a, a phenomenally domestic person. And I think, you know, about a bit further in my story, he was actually one of the people who enabled me to kind of to move from that relationship with him into a different way of being in the world. I was 21 when I when I married Dale, so I was terribly young. And it's like interesting, like when I was looking back over my life over the last few days and thinking about the interview, memory is a funny thing anyway. But when you start to go back over a life and you start to pull threads together, the narrative seems a little a little more seamless than it actually is. You know what I mean? And um, like when I was married from 19, 72 when I met him 76 when we got married it was 96 before I left you know the family home and moved and before that there was four years which were very very difficult um, between 92 and 96 when I was in a relationship with my, my beloved and I think I was working it out in a way as I went along and I don't know what I thought initially maybe I thought I could have a house where we all live together. I don't really know. That's kind of silly, maybe even to think about it. But initially, 
I wasn't kind of going anywhere. I was sort of exploring the relationship, but going nowhere, if you can understand that weird kind of uh, logic. And then as time went on over the couple of years, I realized, no, you really have to choose here. And um, I think I did break his heart. I mean, let me be honest there. And, you know, this is, I'll be be crying here myself, but something in me uh, broke as well, you know. The decision that you had to make was so hard. I told him very early on and I was still trying to figure it out myself and um, it took another couple of years. And like, even it came to the the actual decision to move out and it kind of happened quite suddenly. um, Over a couple of weeks in the summer of 96, it was kind of choose. And I think maybe he gave me an ultimatum. I don't think he thought I'd go. <laughs> I yes. didn't know I was going to go <laughs> myself until I went. And I said, yeah, I'm I'm going because I just feel I've been I've been met and seen and come home to a level of connection with who I am in the world in this relationship and I can't let it go. Now in saying that, it was excruciatingly difficult yeah. for me. To leave. Excruciating. Like it was so hard. I could remember the night before and I said, I can't do it. I can't leave. I said, I can't leave. I can't. And uh, it was my children. I couldn't leave, you know. And she said, well, you know, you don't have to leave. And I think that gave me the courage to kind of, I wasn't being made leave by anybody. Do you know what I mean? I was choosing it and, and I chose it and it, it wasn't a big antagonistic thing, but it was excruciatingly difficult to leave the family home and leave your children behind. It's not that I left my children and I, I've had to redefine that over the years because I didn't actually leave them, but I left them in the family home with their dad. It's still painful to do it. It's still a hard story to tell, you know, and I don't feel that proud of myself either about some aspects of it, you know, but the things you do, you do believing they're the things you you must do and earlier on you, you were talking about your, your children like you have a very strong and good relationship with them and you've told me some, some a lovely story about them on the, the day of marriage equality so I suppose yeah. how did the the relationship with your children once you had come out like how did that develop I felt awfully guilty about the way I was modeling my life for my daughter initially we talked a lot I moved into an apartment very close to where I had been living with the children and got a you know one with room for the children to to stay with me anytime they wanted to and they did a bit you know so I was sort of negotiating ways for them to spend as much time with me as they wanted to and trying to stay involved in their lives as much as I possibly could initially things were good and then for something happened we kind of had a bit of a not quite a falling out but a bit of a distancing for some time and my daughter she found it kind of very hard to to stay connected to me and I found it very hard for her to be in that place but all I could do was keep the lines of communication open and try to just say well you know it's not like I I ever intended to hurt you I, I'm sure I, you have been hurt in in my decision but it wasn't my intention so it did take some time after that kind of period of estrangement for us to come right back into a, into a level of good relationship and one of the things was I did go over to see her and uh, insisted I see her. And it was probably about six or seven years after I'd come out and uh, left the family home. And I went over to see her and she was making all sorts of excuses not to see me. And then I said, well, I'm definitely going to see her. And I, <laughs> we ended up having this conversation that started in the morning when I got off the plane and went on until 
the middle of the night. And um, it was basically, I just said to her, say everything you need to say to me. I never said anything that said I didn't mean that or I never interrupted her. I just let her say everything she needed to say. Absolutely everything. All I tried to do was keep my heart open and just let her tell me absolutely everything and say absolutely everything. And actually, that was the turning point in the relationship, you know, because she'd said she wasn't coming to visit me and she wasn't coming into my house and she didn't want to be in the house. All of these sort of things. And they were all very painful. But that's such a distant memory now, because like that's. 16 years ago, you know, 17 years ago. And like she always claims that that was the kind of clearing or the healing that really enabled her to move forward. That was the transition. It worked. We now have a fantastic relationship. Of course, we annoy each other like mother and daughter. Annoy <laughs> yeah. each other. And uh, and then every now and again, she she says, oh, I don't want to be like you. <laughs> and then say, and then she might say, oh, God, I'm turning into you. And I say, yeah, that always happens. It's terrible. So we've enormous relationship now but we've a good relationship but with my son is a little bit different in the sense that we haven't ever had that conversation and he's not that kind of person do you know what I mean but I think what's happened with him is that he now has two children and he's in a lovely relationship and he's very happy now I mean as happy as anybody can be in COVID but his two beautiful children they're just a joy he hasn't been home very much so the only time to really get him is if you go over and be with him and the kids and and partner and then take the a couple of nights and I go out and we sit the two of us and we sit and we sort the world out and put it to rights and we talk about all kinds of things and that's the relationship we have and and I and again I think God I'm I'm really very very lucky you know so it's like it's not we don't all have the same experience by any manner or means you know and I I am very grateful for for the good experiences you know I still have that pain of remembering the leaving but then again I as I said, Anne Louise was a dear friend, a mentor, a light in my life. I miss her terribly. But one day I was with her and um, we were celebrating. Um, it was actually Catherine's parents' wedding anniversary and they were in Ireland and we we're having this ritual and all of that. And afterwards, it was all about celebrating the length of time they'd committed to each other and how long they were together. And I was undone. I was sitting outside crying, <laughs> crying into my glass of wine going, oh, dear God, do I still have to go through this? <laughs> and Anne Louise came over to me and she said, how are you doing? How are you doing? And I said, oh, Anne Louise, it was so beautiful what you were saying. I said, and all about uh, the courageous staying together of this couple all through their lives. And she said, Anne, she said, as much as we celebrate the courage of people who stay together, we need to celebrate the courage of people who leave. You know, that would sustain me through many a day or a night or a week of, of grief, you know, when I'd be assaulted by grief and guilt and regret and did I do the right thing or, you know, I, I had the courage to leave, to follow my heart and to follow myself into that kind of um Adrian calls Rich calls it homesickness for a woman for ourselves and we we followed that we followed that Deirdre and myself and you know when we when we got um, married um, we had our wedding rings inscribed with lines from a poem by Adrian Rich called Transcendental Etude and uh, the lines in the poem are two women eye to eye measuring each other's spirit each other's limitless desire a whole new poetry beginning here. When we got married, we 
took that quotation and we divided it into three. And this is the story. So on Deirdre's ring, inscribed in the ring, she has two women eye to eye, measuring each other's spirit. And the line I have on mine is a whole new poetry beginning here. And when the marriage equality referendum was passed and when it became law in Ireland in 2015, my beloved bought two more rings and she had the other line, each other's limitless desire inscribed on both the rings. So now we have the full quotation between between us. That is just so romantic. No, it really is. It's terribly romantic. And it's like a whole new poetry beginning here. And it's like, that's what I'm saying yes to. And I'm, I'm still saying yes to it. How long does it take you to feel sort of proud of, of who you were? And, and, <laughs> and, and when did you start to feel like you belonged to this set, to this new community? Thinking about the interview, it was very interesting to look at my life and think of, you know, the 50s and the 60s. And I'm going, 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, you know, my God. <laughs> and and then to start thinking of Ireland, uh, you know, and the cha- the changing kind of face of Ireland. And then thinking of the things that were happening and thinking of music and thinking of art and thinking of political uh, stuff. And then sort of locating your life against that backdrop. So for years, even after we'd got married, I I wouldn't kind of make a big deal out of the fact that I was with a woman. I kind of was still kind of quiet enough about it, you know. Um, I guess to say the time I felt I really belonged um, was really the day of the marriage referendum and being in Dublin Castle, in the grounds of Dublin Castle and hearing the results coming in. And it was so important for me that you know, around me, there were a lot of young people and they're on the on the phone to their parents. And my both my children were on the phone to me saying they were watching it on computers, you know, watching it and watching the results. And so proud for me and for Ireland. And it was so emotional. And we came out onto the streets and just the sense of joy and celebration and car horns and beeping. And, you know, and we did to 66 and, uh, you know, we were there with friends and family members came in and it was just such a feeling of carnival nearly a celebration and joy and we walked um, back towards the north side um, of the city and I think we got a taxi home or I don't know a bus at some point but we were walking and we were just so ecstatically happy and felt that we were proud to be who we were in our own country and proud of our country. But before that, in the 90s, I was exposed to feminist academics and poets like the, the poetry of Adrian Rich and that. And when we got together in 96, one of the things we used to do is we'd go along to what was then the Lesbian and Gay uh, Film Festival. It's since been called gays in the last number of years but we would go to that every year and that was really important because we'd meet people there that we didn't see maybe from one end of the year to the other now okay some people we did but it was a sense of community and a sense of belonging and that was really 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 important now you weren't hiding or anything but it was very funny at one stage I was there and I saw uh, one of my students and I thought oh my god and I wasn't really out in the college where I was teaching at the time and I was thinking oh my god and then we ended up chatting I chatted to this young woman when I was back in the college and it turned out she was a, a young lesbian woman and so thrilled to have met me. And I just said I was there with my partner and I said, well, I'm not, I said, I'm not 
in the closet, but I'm not out, out yet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I wasn't really out. And, and I was kind of slightly worried. I thought, oh, God, she'll tell everybody. But not at all. But not at all at all. Do you know what I mean? There was no question of she had total respect for me as I had for her. So, like, there were little things like that where I found it hard enough to even say my marriage had broken up. Never mind to say and if you think that's bad. <laughs> Wait till you hear. And, um, and then I felt a bit ashamed about the thing and I felt like oh I'm like I'm very weird I'm I'm a I'm a woman that put the love of a woman before her children you know that kind of thing which is not the way I would interpret it now so it's like did I feel I, I didn't feel sometimes I belonged because I didn't know any initially any married women who had taken the steps I had to you know what I mean had who were in my position now as time went on and that helped me to feel a part of it and feel not alone I did meet a number of women some very close friends and some people I hadn't known earlier in my life and found that I wasn't alone and um that it was possible to make this kind of transition you know in that time how important was it to see and, and hear stories of other women who, who'd made uh, similar choices and similar decisions to you. It is good to see yourself represented. I do think to hear the voices is really, really important, really, really important. And um, in the mid 90s, when I was in that kind of position of still married and in love with a woman and trying to negotiate that kind of transition, it was so important. I met a woman who said, gosh, she says there's a poet called Minnie Bruce Pratt. She's an American poet who has published a series of poems about her life's journey. And it was from a marriage into a relationship with a woman. This woman, I met her, she was an American woman and she went back to the States and it was before we were all into Amazon and whatever. And she posted the book over to me and it was like, it was like gold. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I found a representation of my story in as much as, you know, here was a woman married with children. Here was a woman forced to, to choose. I was hungry for that, you know, and like I was I, I constantly looking for people who represented my life. While everyone's experience is different and everyone's journey through life is unique, there are a common set of issues which we all face at different times or which impact certain groups of people at different times in their lives. I chatted with clinical psychologist and head of the Department of Psychology at St. Vincent's University Hospital, Dr. Paul Dalton, about a few of these more common issues, how they affect people, where they have come from and what we can do to confront them. Older members of the LGBTQ community grew up in a time when homosexuality was criminalised in Ireland. LGBTQ people were marginalised, excluded and rendered invisible in our society. As this has changed, a principal focus has been on ensuring young LGBTQ people do not experience these issues and many LGBTQ older people feel that there is still no place for them or that it's too late to come out. Paul spoke to me about the positive impact coming out has, whether you were 17 or 77, and how it's never too late to be who you are. What we see in the LGBT community is reflective or reflected in wider culture as well. That unbalanced um, view of the human, the human journey, the human pathway and the life stages that are there that we, we value some more than others. And when I look at the lives lived, I can't help thinking of the 
the resilience and the strength that almost in spite of growing up in a country where uh, shame was widespread, where repression was uh, was widespread. I can't actually help but thinking, my God, the people who came through that and live one lived and live now wonderfully fulfilled, joyful lives. I mean, that to me is just a testament to the capacity of the human heart and the human mind in the face of real opposition to flourish. And we flourish, you know, we flourish in in community and we come out in community. At whatever stage of our lives that is, at 17 or at 70, and we do that in community and it is of equal value. When we announce to the world who we are the nervous system begins to settle. We begin to breathe again. We begin to feel at home in the world. And um, that's not age dependent. People need supports across that trajectory. And I think our focus has so been on, on younger people, and that's really important. But there is a whole group of people too who continue to need support, befriending, who need to hear stories of of the very brave people, courageous, brave and joyful people who came out later in life. Seeing more uh, positive versions of of your life uh, represented is is so important to help you just feel confident in in, in being who you are and the journey that you're on. And we kind of touched on this already. Um, People often think that the coming age is kind of a single event when in fact it's definitely a process and a process which never really ends and starts again every time you meet a a new person and obviously within that there are some like more significant coming outs than than others and the last time we were talking you you told me quite a a a nice story about how you had come out to your mother (laughs) oh yeah yeah and i i was i was checking back over the dates as well as i said i was trying to look into the the rte archives which are like a minefield for getting through. Yeah. But um, I discovered anyway that, I won't tell you how I discovered that it was 1998, but I knew it was 1997 or 1998. So it was 1998 and I was uh, living in Baldoyle at the time and we'd moved into the house together in late 97. And um, I was driving my mum. My mum didn't drive. And I was driving her to the funeral of a, a wife of somebody that worked with my dad. And my, my dad had um, died in 95. Um, so my dad, I never came out to my dad. Probably, I did come out to him, but he was dead. <laughs> I talked to him on the beach. And I said, yeah. okay, dad, I know where you are. You can accept this. But back to my mum. So I was driving to... Oh, somewhere on the south side, and because I was terrified, I get lost. And we arrived out of the church, but we were driving, and whatever program was on, I think it was a Saturday morning because it was the weekend of Pride, right? So it was a June morning in 1978, and I was with my mom, and we were going to this funeral, and sitting in the car, and um, who's on the radio? Only Emma Donoghue, and she's being interviewed now, maybe in relation to a book or something. I don't remember exactly, but she was shutting away, and Mom was saying, "I love her." She said, "She's so articulate." 
And she's just lovely. I love to hear somebody, and she always did love somebody who expressed themselves well. But both my mum and dad were like that. They loved language and loved to hear somebody articulate something well. They loved to loved theatre as they loved to go to theatre and they mam used to uh, recite poetry. They loved loved words. So they always loved somebody who expressed themselves well and they had great admiration for that. So mam is saying how much she likes Emma Donoghue. And I said, well, you kind of hear the way she's talking there about about herself and I was sort of falling over the words and me god I have so many words at my disposal and I said well I I said well that's uh, that's like Deirdre myself Uh, that's like that we're like that she said oh it's like is it like you're married and and I said yeah 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 it is it is and she said (laughs) And she said something funny, like, uh, like I had her exact words, but it was like, um, it almost sounded like she was saying, is it sexually like you're married? But she would never ask that question in a million years. And I was saying, oh, it's exactly like, yes, exactly like being married. And I, it must have been before we had mobile phones, because I know, no, I couldn't tell Deirdre I'd had this conversation. I hadn't told Deirdre I'd had this conversation yeah. with my mom. And she just said, turned to me and she said, and are you happy? And I said, yes, ma'am. I said, I'm very happy. I said, well, then I'm happy for you. So after the funeral, we went back to the house in Baldoyle and opening the door or ringing on the door, well, I don't know, Deirdre opened the door and my mother came into the hall, threw her arms around Deirdre. Deirdre didn't know what this was about, except (laughs) she later found out and she threw her arms around and she said, I've always loved you. That is so wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> I've always loved you, Deirdre. And she just, that was it. She just totally and <laughs> utterly and completely accepted Deirdre, accepted me, accepted us. Um, Was very good mother, grandmother to my daughter when she was going through the hard time with me. And um, even to the point that I only discovered years later when my daughter actually told me how often she went out to mams. I didn't even know. And your mammy'd always be giving her 20 euro. You know, when you're in college, you always need the old... Mammy mammy gave away all her money. She gave away everything. She gave away her entire self. But um, she adored Deirdre. And she used to say, oh, Deirdre can do anything. Deirdre can do everything. You know, which is true. It was a lovely, just a deep, deep acceptance of who I am, who Deirdre was. And even without... I mean, if I say without understanding it, I I I don't mean my mother was stupid or anything. I just mean without, she just fully got that this Deirdre and myself were so important to each other and as if we were married and that was fine. That was fine with her and it always was. It always was, you know, and that, ah, it was just, it was so lovely, you know, and you know, I, I, I was extremely lucky and, you know, and I only gradually kind of came out to, to people. I, sometimes I kind of ran away from the coming out conversation. I just thought, oh, I can't do this again. And sometimes I went into my own kind of um, homophobia, which was nearly like, oh, God, why am I? Why am I in love with a woman? It would be much easier if I wasn't when I knew I was, you know, and um and even then, like, what do you call yourself? And I said, oh, God, I don't want to be calling myself 
bisexual or, you know, I, I thought that doesn't feel like me. And I always remember Anne-Louise saying to me, she said, oh, she said, some people find it very easy to define themselves as bisexual or lesbian. She said, I, I always think about it in terms of my capacity for intimacy with another human being. And what's my capacity for intimacy with this person? And if this is the deepest capacity for intimacy that I have and I have ever experienced, well, that's that's who you are. Do you know what I mean? Like, so it was, it was, it was almost beyond the naming of it. And I don't want to insult anybody else uh, who who feels that. The, and I do think naming is important, but I think everybody has to find their own way yeah, to that- be comfortable with that. This is reflecting on your your identity, like as you age and as you become maybe more reliant on needing external support, what are your concerns around having your identity continue to be respected? Obviously, you're very lucky in that you have a, a solid support network around you with children and family. But just I suppose, what are you, are, do you have concerns that sort of you, you're, you're, you may have to go back into the closet or not be able to express who you are if you, if yeah. you need to? Um, we certainly do. We often talk about it. And, um, you know, as you age, you have, you know, health issues and concerns and you think, oh, God, like, are we going to have to start coming out all over again? Like, you know, I mean, I know it's horrific at the moment. Nobody can be in hospital with anybody else at the moment from their family. I absolutely dread the thought that I would, and I'll say, I'm going to say end up in a nursing home. Now, apart from the general things, neither of my parents were in a nursing home at the end of their lives. And I think we were lucky like that because I went and visited places and thought I couldn't leave my mother here. And my mother was a heterosexual woman. I have no idea how on earth I could go into a nursing home as an older lesbian woman and go back into this prehistoric do you know this I, I I'm very very nervous about that and um like I'm in denial about it as well because I, I kind of don't even want to think about it I think oh god this is just this is this is ahead of us now this is absolutely horrific and then when your children are living in an, in different countries you're kind of thinking god even if I got sick or if if I needed support, they're not even in the in the same country. Not that I would ever land myself on my children. I wouldn't. And my own mother was very good about that. She said, "I don't want any of you looking after me." And it, you can say it, but like I I cannot imagine what it would be like to go into a nursing home where eighty percent of the people or ninety were heterosexual men or women. And to be the gay person in amongst them, the lesbian woman. I, 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 I haven't even got a category. It's like, God almighty, this, this would be absolutely horrific. This would be horrific. I, I, well, I think in terms of ageing, and I think some people are exploring the whole issue of nursing homes that take into account where people have been in same-sex relationships and trying to maybe create alternative environments which are a bit more enlightened. But like, it seems like, oh God, we're going to have to start educating all over again. The battle is never, I shouldn't use the metaphor of the battle, but it's like, oh God, we still have to tell the story. We'll still have to challenge attitudes and we'll still have to come out again and again and again. Oh my God. 
I actually think that the battle analogy is is sort of um, appropriate there in that sense of kind of um, sometimes when you're going into a non-gay or non-queer space, you, you do have to armour up for that because it's always this piece of information you're carrying with you that you have to choose whether or when you're going to you're, you're going to reveal and be prepared for the potential response you might get um, or even just be prepared to have to educate someone about it. Do you think it's important that LGBT spaces make themselves more open and inclusive to older people? Well, I guess yes is the answer to that. <laughs> it's still nice to know that you can be in be somewhere and just be completely yourself. I suppose it's that idea of of dancing together, like, and I'm talking about I'm talking about the old slow dance, you know, the smooch. It would be nice to feel there were places that were gay friendly and that older people maybe could meet. I remember a woman at my age in the gay community and out for a long time organising a women's disco. And it was such fun. It was such fun to know. So like it is nice to be with people where you feel safe. Yeah, that feeling of of safety is is so important. Um, one last thing bef- before we finish up. What do you think that we can all do to make sure that older LGBT people are are, are properly included now in our community and just in, in society more generally? I would love to see a retrieval of that respect for the wisdom of the senior or the elder in the community. You're doing the right thing about having people tell their stories. I mean, that's it. What is your story? And as I said, the narrative of an, of a life many narratives. There are threads in a tapestry. And I think we need to see the kind of the messiness of people's lives as well, like that it's not all seamless, that it's up and down. But to hear the variety of stories, just listen to the story. It's like it has a timbre, it has a it has a colour, it has a a thread. And it, William Stafford has a lovely poem, there's a thread you follow, it goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. You never let go of that thread. And I think it's like talking to you, I'm realising that the thread I'm following is the thread of what it means to be an embodied, connected human being with mm-hmm. spirit in the world. What, what does it mean to live from this centre, to live in a heartfelt way, to live in a, in a way that's always changing? And yet there is some kind of essence that doesn't change, you know, that there's a kind of a, an essence of self, call it what you will, but um, it's something that's unchanging, even amidst all the changes and the up and the downs and the positive and the negative and the, the guilt and the betrayal and whatever it might be. There is this essence of self that, just, you know, you're connected to. And it's worth hearing as many varieties of that story as we yes. can possibly hear. You know, the whole Black Lives Matter movement in the States, it's like, let's hear more of the stories of people. Let's stop speaking for people. Let them tell their stories. Yes. Let's not presume we know their stories. Let's not just get the facts. Let's get the do the tone, the, 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 the texture of the story. Let's really feel it. And my goodness, nothing is as transformative, I think, as that. In my conversations with Anne, one of the themes which kept coming up was the journey to discovering the fullest form of her identity. And she came back to the poetry of Adrian Rich again and again, remarking how totally and utterly it had changed her life. 
During one of our conversations, she shared a poem which she had written about the impact of the poetry of Adrian Rich on the journey of her life, called Where It All Began. She has been kind enough to allow me to include this poem here. I think it quite powerfully captures that feeling of following your heart despite fear or anxiety. How could I have known that when your poetry found me, it would burn down my house? Two women, eye to eye, how we stumbled into love. Your words stretching the contours of our known world. A whole new cartography unfolding. Where before they had imagined dragons, we gazed at ourselves made new, felt your world map syntaxes of fire, speak the body's unsayable rooms we dared to enter, lips in flames, everything on fire behind me, burning still. In recording the interviews for this series, it's remarkable to me that despite the breadth of experience and the difference of the lives lived by the eight individuals who participated, there is one area of consistency. Each and every one said the same thing, that the most important thing that we can do to become a more compassionate and inclusive society is listen to the stories of those of experienced marginalisation and face discrimination. So thank you for listening to this episode of Invisible Threads. For more information about LGBT Ireland, the National Support Service for LGBTQ people and the work which we do for older members of the LGBTQ community or to donate to help us continue our work, please visit lgbt.ie. If you have been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode and need to talk, LGBT Ireland operate the National LGBT Helpline, which is available on 1890-929-539. We have also included details of other organisations that offer advice, support and information in the show notes. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. This project has received funding from the Government of Ireland's Launchy Care Integration Fund 2019.